Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we consider how artists have looked at one of America's most beautiful and dramatic landscapes, the Lake Tahoe region in California and Nevada. Back in the 19th century, when artists first started traveling there, Tahoe seemed poised to be the successor to the Hudson River Valley, Niagara Falls, and Yosemite as America's favorite landscape. Did it ever quite get there? We'll consider that question with three guests. First up, Anne M. Wolfe, who has curated the exhibit Tahoe of Visual History, the first major art historical survey of art made in and about the Tahoe region. It's at the Nevada Museum of Art in Reno through January 10, 2016. Wolf also co-edited the show's enormous, thorough, nearly 10-pound catalog, which was published by Skira Rizzoli. Then two artists whose work is in the show, Michael Light and Mark Klett. Light's work typically examines the environment and American culture's engagement with it. He's published seven books, including 100 Sons, one of my favorites, and has been included in exhibitions at LACMA, the Getty, and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, all institutions which have collected his work. Klett is a pioneer in the practice of re-photography, projects he has often undertaken with Byron Wolf. Museums such as the Fine Arts Museums of San Francisco, the Art Institute of Chicago, LACMA, and the Nelson Atkins have presented solo exhibitions of his work. But first up, Ann Wolf. after the break. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places LA, the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. Jackson Pollock a Collection Survey, 1934 to 1954, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. See over 50 rarely shown drawings, prints, and paintings that track Jackson Pollock's artistic evolution and the relentless experimentation at the heart of his creativity. And don't miss the critically acclaimed once-in-a-lifetime exhibition Picasso Sculpture. Get more information and time tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. And we're back. Ann Wolf, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me to talk about this great exhibition, Tahoe, A Visual History. So starting in, in the early to mid-19th century, American art focused on kind of the series of landscape subjects we all, we all learned in school and have seen in museums around the country. So there was the Hudson Valley, and then there was Niagara Falls, and then came, you know, in 1861 came Yosemite. Is your show arguing that that the Lake Tahoe region could could be the one that's next after that? Well, I would say that in many ways we have come to understand the histories and the art histories of the places you just mentioned, some of America's most iconic landscapes, because their art histories have been recorded. Those art historical narratives have been studied by scholars and researched for decades. And I think it's fair to say that this particular region, the Tahoe Donner region of the Sierra, has been under-recognized, even though some of the most significant historical events in United States history primarily the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad over Donner Pass, have taken place right here in this part of the Sierra. And so I think that there's much to be gained from this first really significant historical study of this particular 
part of the Sierra. Obvious follow-up, why has Tahoe not received the same kind of art historical overview treatment that some of the others have? Well, I think it's interesting. Many of the singular artworks that are featured in the exhibition have been folded into those larger art historical narratives. Albert Bierstadt's painting of Donner Lake from the Summit, for example. But it's just a significant area of research that you know has not been covered. And I think there's a lot of possible reasons for that. Tahoe perches on the western edge of the Great Basin. The Great Basin in the United States was the last large swath of desert landscape to be officially, you might say, explored by the United States government. And in many ways, uh, Lake Tahoe is uh, could be seen similarly, Lake Tahoe Donner, as being one of the last great you know, regions to be uh, explored or further studied by art historians. So I think there's a nice metaphor there that could be followed. Among the painters who, who visit the region are lots of familiar names, Albert Bierstadt, Thomas Hill, Gilbert Munger, uh, and eventually William Keith. You know, some of these artists have had major East Coast careers, and some are still waiting for East Coast institutions and scholars to notice them, but they're all well-known in the West. When painters visited the region, did they tend to have similar things that interested them, or or did they... I mean, you know, when 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 photographers and, and painters went to Yosemite, they, they kind of ended up at the same places. Some of that was the trail system, some of that was not. In Tahoe, how are are they picking the same things or are they attracted by different possibilities? Well, we have worked closely with an art historian, Alfred Harrison, who's written extensively on the 19th century uh, paintings in this particular exhibition. I mean, he writes quite a bit about the painters uh, who are working in the 19th century in this particular region, many of whom, have you've noted, uh, are coming from the East Coast and many of whom have relocated sometimes temporarily, sometimes for longer periods in the burgeoning San Francisco, San Francisco Bay Area artist colonies and groups that have emerged on the West Coast. So what they bring with them from the East Coast is that, again, interest and passion and training in the Hudson River School style. So they bring much of that same stylistic approach to this region. And by that, I mean, there's an interest in being topographically accurate in their representations and depicting a landscape that's been essentially unseen by many Americans and helping to give an identity to the new American landscape. But at the same time, of course, in the 19th century, there's an interest in uh, the sublime and the broadly held notion that nature is a symbol of God's handiwork. And so it's not good enough for a painter to create a landscape painting that's just topographically accurate. It also needs to be depicted as better than right. Photography is a huge part of, of, of the Tahoe story, as with several other places in the 19th century American West. Charles Leander Weed kind of gets there first. Weed was the first photographer to go into Yosemite Valley in 1859. His pictures there weren't very good, but he was first. And he's in the Tahoe region in the early 1860s. In fact, almost exactly pretty close to when Watkins is, is in is in Yosemite. Weed's Tahoe pictures are a million times better than his Yosemite pictures. Why was Weed there, and and what did he uh, what did he pull out of the region? Well, it's interesting, you know, in beginning a project like this and writing specifically on photography, we essentially began with a, a pretty blank slate. The 
a narrative of 19th century photography in the Tahoe Donna region had not been written. Of course, there's well-known photographers we know who have been in the region, working in the region, but we I couldn't have told you five years ago who took the first photograph of Lake Tahoe. And uh, the closest we've been able to come is to sort of try to date that early photography of Lake Tahoe to between 1862 and 1864, but I, I'm able to identify those that photographer as Charles Leander Weed. So Weed in 1862 made his first trip to, again, the Comstock Mines in Virginia City. Those were very attractive to photographers working in the West, and Weed was hired by a firm out of San Francisco known as Lawrence and Howsworth to uh, document sort of the, the Comstock Mines as well as the, the route to uh, Virginia City and the early state of Nevada. And so we've been able to trace weed specifically to the route to Nevada through a couple of photographs that in the past have been misidentified as Yosemite that have we've now been able to sort of reclaim as part of this particular region. But we trace him traveling from the Sacramento region up to Nevada, circling the lake, making some very early images of Lake Tahoe. Most of his work has, is, is very human-centered, and so his imagery shows wagon trains and early pioneers crossing uh, very snowy summits. And he takes in 1860, sometime between 1862 to 1864, the first panorama of Lake Tahoe, which is actually not a really great photograph of Lake Tahoe, but an important and significant, you know, first first view that we can now trace. The next three major photographers who come through the area are uh, Timothy O'Sullivan, Alfred Hart, who was uh, the Central Pacific's uh, staff photographer, uh, and Andrew J. Russell, who who also worked for the railroad. O'Sullivan was there for, for, for Nevada City. The other two were railroad guys. What are they showing us about the, of the region that is different than what interested Weed? Sure. Well, O'Sullivan, of course, was working with Clarence King on his survey of the 40th parallel. And so he takes only three images of uh, Donner Pass, which are taken in 1867 from the top of Donner Summit, one of which shows Donner Lake, and one of which shows the snow tunnels of the railroad and the snow sheds of the railroad under construction. So he spends very little time in the region proper. What we see with Alfred Hart and then Andrew J. Russell, and then of course Carlton Watkins to follow, is the work of photographers who are now coming to the region because they've been commissioned by railroad executives to uh, document the construction of the transcontinental line, particularly the pass over, over Donner. And so what they, are doing is creating images that are, of course, pleasing to their clients. They're, the railroad is looking always for, the railroad company is always looking for new investors to invest in the construction of the railroad, and then eventually using these photographs to bring new tourists to the region. So they're made by photographers with an eye toward, towards that in mind. And you can see that in uh, the imagery that shows, you know, the grand Snow tunnels under construction, very impressive early industrial structures uh, along the transcontinental line, and rarely the the realities of the construction, which included the vast numbers of Chinese laborers who were involved in the construction of labor uh, in construction of the railroad. For the most part, the harsher realities of progress and that accompanied the railroad construction are either marginalized or very um, minimally present in these photographs. So about 10 years after 
Russell and O'Sullivan and Hart are in the Tahoe Donner area. Carlton Watkins comes along. It's not clear who he was working for. He may have just been on his own account. He may have been working for the CPRR. Those records were, were almost entirely destroyed by the events of 1906. Are there any Watkins pictures from this region that you think are particularly good, meaningful, or revealing? Well, I think there's a couple in particular, both taken a little bit to the west of Donner Pass, one of which is rounding Cape Horn, the other of which is the Canyon of the American River. And I think what's interesting about these images is they show sort of a seamless integration of the presence of the railroad, these sort of large, uh, very impressive locomotives or uh, newly laid railroad tracks really integrated into the to the landscape. And so I think that varies significantly interestingly some from some of the photographs he took at nearly the same time of the lumber industry at Glenbrook and so i think with this which are really underrated pictures yeah i was glad to see one of those right i think that you know there's again with the railroad imagery there is that integration that's more seamless integration of industry into the natural landscape whereas in the work that he takes at Glenbrook of the Carson and Tahoe Lumber and Fluming Company in 1876 you really see uh, for the first time a photographer documenting he was hired to document the headquarters of the, of this lumber company and you see his images framed by fallen trees and by you know the, the mills on the shore of the Glenbrook Bay and then uh, of course in another subsequent image, uh, what you might call all of Tahoe's timber lane and an adjacent valley headed to the underground mines of the Comstock. So I think that's a very interesting comparison that can be made with the work of Watkins, both that seamless integration versus, you know, essentially showing an altered landscape impacted by industry. That that picture of the Carson and Tahoe Lumber and Fluming Company's kind of rail yard, we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com is one of the most amazing pictures of the era, not just for its composition and for how it does indeed show the remnants of of Tahoe region forests, but there are only a handful of pictures by Watkins and not that many by others that chronicle the results or actuality of environmental degradation in the region. As we get into the 20th century, I, I think you could probably make an argument that, that the Tahoe region is is maybe the first place in California where pictorialism enters enters the story of the of the art of the West, and and in the, and in the book and I think in the show maybe Anne Brigman is the clearest example of that. How does how does Brigman get there, and and what does she begin to add to the way artists looked at the region? Well, what you see after the turn of the 20th century at Lake Tahoe is the rise of a resort culture, which is very different than you see in some of America's other great iconic landscapes. So you have increased access thanks to the railroad as well as the automobile, which are now bringing tourists uh, to the region. And a large number of artists are coming from the San Francisco Bay Area, which in many ways is sort of a hotbed for pictorialism, the arts and crafts era, this emphasis on looking back to historical precedents and also connecting with nature in a very close way. So Anne Brigman is the perfect example of an independent spirit. Uh, She's a photographer from the East San Francisco Bay Area who travels to Donner Pass and to Lake Tahoe and to the adjacent desolation, what was known at the time as Desolation Valley, by herself with only a knapsack 
um, a few books and some camping equipment. And she takes these incredibly progressive and evocative photographs, beautiful pictorialist photographs of herself, as well as sometimes her sister or her other or friends that she may have taken, nude photographs um, engaged in the landscape. And they're very different than what we've seen so far. It, or the, the previous Brigman's photographs are very different than the earlier work produced at Tahoe, which again, all had that tendency to emphasize industry or the railroad. These are um, revealing of a much more personal relationship with nature. Brigman was also a, a wonderful writer and a, a journalist and a poet, and her writings about the region are are very profound and, and personal. And I think it sets her apart from a lot of the other photographers in the exhibition. I want to close by going to the beginning of the show, at least in terms of timeline. Before there were Euro-American artists at Tahoe, there were Washoe artists and craftspeople. How did you, how and why did you choose to represent them in the show? The earliest inhabitants of the Lake Tahoe region were the Washoe people. And I think it's important to look to the Washoe people because of their very close relationship to the environment, the way that they tended the environment, the, the way that they cared for its resources and utilized them not only to create basketry that was functional and utilitarian, but that was also transformed into fine art after the 20th century. We work closely with uh, the Washoe people and indigenous communities in our region on a number of various projects. And what we see time and again is that the relationships that they developed with the environment and the landscape are those that we can learn a lot from today and that are mirrored in the work of a lot of the contemporary artists in the exhibition that we have invited to participate and who have made new work about our region as well. And so so the, the connection to materials that the Washoe people cherished is um, something that we should all keep in mind as we look at the art of the region. And of course, the what has been the ongoing challenges to resources, both timber and water resources in the region. And as we look to the future, you know, sort of try to revisit the philosophies of the Washoe people and, and the beauty of the work that they made um, that was so integral to their way of life and their lifestyle. Ann Wolf, thanks so much for talking with me. Well, thank you. It's been great to talk with you today. The Hammer Museum presents Uh-Oh, the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's alma mater backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh-Oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents After Picasso, 80 Contemporary Artists, on view September 19th through December 27th. After Picasso is a major exhibition examining Picasso's potent legacy and ongoing impact on several generations of artists. This vibrant show fills the entirety of the Wexner Center's galleries and includes a diverse array of work from international talent such as Andy Warhol, Louise Lawler, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Amy Selman, Haimo Zobring, Jasper Johns, and many more. 
Originally organized by the Dijkterhallen and called Picasso in Contemporary Art, this exhibition is making its only stop in the United States at the Wexner Center. For more information, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Michael Light, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. So before we get to a couple of pictures of yours that are included in the book and in the exhibition, what was the particular or specific motivation for you to go into that region, into the Tahoe region, to make work? Well, uh, most specifically, I was asked by the museum. So it was a commission for me to head up in my small little aircraft and uh, shoot an area of the Sierras that, that I'd never really worked over before. The mountains are very demanding and my aircraft is, is tiny. It weighs about 600 pounds empty and about 1,300 pounds fully loaded with a 100 horsepower engine. And the bigger the spiky mountains are, the more focused I become. <laughs> Ann Wolf, the curator at the museum, said, would you, you know, would you like to do some Tahoe work? And I said, of course. And I had just done some changes in the actual uh, configuration of the aircraft that allowed me to better photograph in the winter, which has its own challenges. Uh, but previous to those changes, I would actually have to take the doors off the aircraft to fly an image. And uh, so I suddenly... I just enlarged a window and I could leave the doors on. And so this it was a, a perfect opportunity to do winter work in the mountains, which I had never done. And obviously, you know, Tahoe is uh, at high altitude and we have a lot of fantastic snowy Sierra mountains around and about. And just winter seemed like the logical thing to do. So so that's that's why I went. You know, I have photographed all over the arid West for years, uh, and I've lived in San Francisco for 30 years. I'm originally from New York, but I have never been particularly attracted to Tahoe as an area. I'm much more interested in sort of the, uh, the, the great, greater basin areas. I, I spent a lot of time down at Mono Lake, which is sort of a, <laughs> a salty Tahoe <laughs> in some ways. And a lot more spare and, you know, sort of a high sagebrush step. And the, the kind of classic San Francisco resident, let's go to Tahoe in the summer or the winter, has never really appealed to me. So it was country that I did not know, uh, either on the ground or really from the air. I mean, of course, I'd been there and, and I was familiar a little bit with art history, but not, not terribly. And so it was, it was fun for me to just actually classically explore in my plane. And to do it to do it in the winter was particularly interesting. We did it in a kind of a, a early late winter, early spring, and we shot after a couple of snowstorms. And uh, there's a kind of innocence that is a valuable thing, I think. Tahoe is a very difficult thing to image because it's so large. It's very hard to to, to make a painting. It's hard to make a photograph of it. It's large and it's high and it's unwieldy in visual terms. It's very beautiful, but it's, uh, it's almost too big to image uh, properly. And of course, in an aircraft, I can go up very, very high and make the lake small. So I have a much more power in some senses than, than somebody working uh, to image it from the ground. But that I found didn't work either. And so we explored and did a a lot of circumnavigations, and I was particularly interested in working with the ski resorts. Let me just fill that in for people who maybe aren't familiar with the Tahoe region. There are in the mountains around Tahoe probably about two dozen ski resorts as close to Tahoe as where if 
you know, from Incline Village on the Nevada side, on the north side, from the slopes you can look down on the lake, and from others of the ski resorts, you're several dozen, two or three dozen miles away, and maybe you're in the region, but you're not, not close to the lake. Yes, yes. So there's a range, and in the ones that are closer to the lake, of course, it's very, it's very beautiful because you're skiing on these fantastic slopes with views of the lake. And so I was doing circumnavigations of the lake. I was looking at the, at the mountains uh, from the vantage point of being over the lake. And then I was also trying to actually shoot the lake from the mountains. And w- one of the fascinating things that happened, and it's a, it's a picture that's actually in the show, is that I found these two small sort of sub-lakes off of Lake Tahoe, and they were just perfectly sized for for uh, uh, making a wonderful image. <laughs> and yeah, these are these are. Let me let me explain that for a quick second. These are these are two kind of alpine style small lakes tucked in amidst peaks. You know, I don't know if they're moraine lakes or not, but they're called Cascade Lake and Emerald Lake, and they are, I think, south of Tahoe. Um, well, they're, and they're in your, in, yeah, they're southwest, and Emerald Lake actually opens onto Tahoe. So there's a, a there's a small aperture, the one side of Emerald Lake. I'm pretty sure that go. Oh, Emerald, yeah, Emerald Bay. Emerald Bay, exactly, Emerald Bay. See, and I think the fact that I can't even tell you the proper name of this is indicative of exactly the kind of innocence that that I had, right? So I'm I'm flying all over the area and I come to these two perfect gems, Emerald, <laughs> Emerald, Emerald Lake, uh, Emerald Bay, and and I make this picture and it it has nothing to do with actual Tahoe Lake and it's it's, it's showing the lakes, uh, the smaller lakes and the mountains beyond and there was a thunderstorm that was directly over my head. It was very dramatic and a little dodgy. Which you can kind of see reflected in the lakes. Yeah. We'll have the picture on manpodcast.com, of course. And then after the fact, and it, and it was it's a terrific picture and I'm I'm I was very pleased to make it. But after the fact, I realized that. Throughout the history of artists visualizing Tahoe, Emerald Bay is probably more, gets more star power than the actual Tahoe Lake itself. It is imaged again and again and again. And I came to this from the air in a kind of an innocent, innocent way. And and it it really does uh, uh, speak to the fact that the larger Lake Tahoe is a tough thing to picture. And uh, and artists have come back time and again, painters and photographers, to Emerald Bay because it's contained and it, it shows the small and the large together. And so it was it was kind of revelatory for me, and it it gave me no small amount of amusement that I stumbled into Emerald Bay, and and made this picture. The island in Emerald Bay, the richly densely forested island, has factored in art of Tahoe since almost the very beginning, and and particularly for early photographers, it was really helpful in in providing some depth. And in your picture, it kind of distinguishes Emerald Bay from Cascade Lake and provides a sense of scale that in the midst of this big mountainscape kind of helps the thing click into place. How, How important to you or of interest to you was Highway 89, which bisects your picture, uh, which is a highway that, that, that obviously goes up uh, up to Tahoe from, from the foothills. Well, when I'm in the air and dealing with an oncoming thunderstorm, probably 500 feet from my aircraft, and, you know, I'm, I'm uh, trying to image as, as fast and as quickly as I can. I don't overtly think about, oh, 
you know, there's Highway 89. Let me articulate it in relation to uh, Emerald Bay and Cascade. However, uh, on a subconscious level, you know, my work really deals with the collision always uh, of, of the built world and what I would call the unbuilt or the natural world. So the altered landscape, as it's often termed, is my thing. And I, I, I think that on a subconscious level, I'm always integrating the proverbial Highway 89 into the picture, particularly if it's of this classic kind of mountain splendor, which this picture really is driven by. And I think the road itself, which shows a very strong hand of a uh, human hand, is, is key to the picture for me and, and for my interests. Without the road, it's, uh, it's kind of, well, it could, be, it could be straight Ansel Adams, really. So it's kind of that high mountain, stormy grandeur. And, and so the road, subconsciously, you know, I put it in there and I arrange the picture and, and the road plays a very key, centralized, kind of a tough, a tougher element. Another picture of, of yours in the show, I don't know how I feel about giving away the picture, but what it is is a, is a picture of the top of, of Heavenly Ski Resort. Is it important to you, or not for that matter, that when people see that picture, it takes them a few moments to figure out how it is man impacted, where, where the man alteration comes from, and thus at what we are looking? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think you know, you want to integrate both both the natural world as an actor and humans as actors in in ideally confusing and layered and uh, and metaphorical ways. So, you know, I was particularly intrigued by the many, many ski resorts, by the proliferation of them. You know, they are essentially golf courses in winter, you know, as a as a phenomenon that we create the ski resort the golf course. So they're, they're golf courses with snow, but they're, you know, they're in mountainous uh, regions with very spectacular geology. They're most often in the middle of national forests. Uh, so they have, you know, fantastic tree life. Yeah. So this, this picture is a little, a little disorienting. It's animated uh, by a very different light than the other, other photograph. This is uh, clear sunlight bouncing off of the snow so it's all the more intense yeah this is i think it was in the afternoon we have western light in that picture and it's late in the afternoon and so we have a lot of axial low shadows cast by the trees which give a sense of texture that is that is quite palpable and and i often do that in in my in my photographs and at scale the print is 40 inches by 50 inches you know you can uh, get in very very close it's a very sharp image you know and see the moguls and see skiers on the moguls and and but but it it you know if you back up and see the entire image you have a goodly sector of uh, of the ski resort and and the mountain range that 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 sort of undergirds it behind all the way off to Carson Valley, way, way off in the far distance. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a nice image. You mentioned earlier this project for you was, was, was a commission that kind of came, I don't know, sort of attached to the show. Did you think through the art history of the region, the extent to which it had one that is well known or that is not well known or in comparison to Yosemite, was that part of your your thought or, or not so much? Uh, it's definitely part of my general thinking and my general sort of education and approach to my image making in the larger the larger Arid West. I mean, I I know my Timothy O'Sullivan. I know <clears throat> you know I I know my 
photographic history, and I, I have a reasonably good grasp of, of landscape painting history. I didn't want to get too too tied up in, in specificity. I did think to myself, hmm, uh, you know, I, I flew out of Truckee Airport, and that is, as you know, is, is much closer to Donner Pass. And I thought about Donner Pass in art historical terms, uh, and I just decided to focus mostly on the lake itself and the ski resorts around it and the mountains that undergirded the ski resorts. Donner Pass, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting, and for some reason... I just thought, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take that on. It's a little, it could be a little dodgy up there in my aircraft because it's narrow and windier, and it's tighter. It's, it can be quite tight, and I'm in a fixed-wing aircraft, so when I'm photographing, I'm photographing in circles, and if you get into too narrow a basin, <laughs> uh, your circles are wider than the basin, and you hit the rock. And so, you know, in winter, flying in the mountains can be, you know, and I like to fly low and I shoot with a wide angle. So I forewent Donner Pass, but the larger region, you know, is, and, and the scope of the show at the museum is the curators were brilliant, I think, in bringing in the Donner Pass area to the, to the larger show because in some senses, while Tahoe has been a great inspiration to many, many artists, I think the real Venturi point, if you will, uh, for art history and for California history and the real Venturi point for the show is actually Donner Pass and, and, and the representations of Donner Pass in the mid-19th century. Bierstadt in particular are, are just astounding in the show. And to see you know, Donner Pass is just a stone's throw away from Tahoe and uh, just slightly north. And to see the full on art historical kind of analysis of, of Donner Pass in the show in relation to Tahoe is, is terrific. So to answer your question, yeah, I think about art history, but I also don't want to get too, too uh, preloaded, if you will. I was really being an explorer. There are Donner Pass images in the show from 19th century photographers like Timothy O'Sullivan and from artists like Bierstadt and Carlton Watkins, um, the two famous Bierstadts of, of Donner Pass. Uh, there's the big and horizontal one at the New York Historical Society and a smaller, tighter vertical one at the de Young in San Francisco. Have you, you know, one of the things that as I read the catalog and have thought about this show have found myself kind of fascinated by is the progression of American landscapes through the 19th century, you know, and in, in, in as, as listeners heard earlier on the show, you know, it kind of goes from the Hudson River to Niagara to Yosemite. And after Yosemite, a fourth major American landscape never quite evolves, coalesces in, in, in art. And it seems to me Tahoe had as good a chance at being that as anything, so to speak. But that never quite got done. It never quite happened. And I wonder if any of that has struck you and if you have any guesses on why it hasn't happened. I, I, it, it has struck me, and I think it's a, 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 very, uh, a very interesting point. 
And I, I have some thoughts on that. The first thought is that the Tahoe area, and this would include Donner Summit, is generally less classically rugged and less classically sublime. It's then, then say, this, the high Sierra, quote unquote, which is just to the south uh, of the region. So the, the Sierras begin to sort of soften a bit by the time they, they get up to Tahoe, uh, that far north. And so it's not quite the full, high, sublime grand that exists further south. Also, it's tough competition with Yosemite, which is essentially a stone's throw away as well. Now, Yosemite Valley <clears throat> is, of course, on the west side of, of the peaks, and Tahoe's kind of on the eastern side of the peaks. Topish eastern, Top-ish yeah. eastern. And Yosemite is, again, not a great, open, sweeping, vast, flat lake, which is, you know, it's a stunning Tahoe's a stunning thing to behold, but it's 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 um it's not as dense. Yosemite is incredibly dense. It's a narrow valley with more kind of amusement park visual uh, candy than you can than any one person can absorb. Tahoe is in a way the opposite. Tahoe mirrors what lies just to the east of it, which is the larger Great Basin area. Of America, which is to say that part of, of, of North America where all the all, all, all the water does not drain to the sea, but actually drains into an interior basin. And that 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 uh, Great Basin area runs from the edge of the eastern Sierras all the way over to the Wasatch Mountains in Utah, across the entirety of Nevada and a great deal of, of Utah, up to Idaho. And, and quite a ways far south. I, I, can't, I, I don't know exactly where the far uh, southern border is, but it kind of runs down into Death Valley and the Mojave. And we're talking the great big American empty. And in a way, Tahoe is, has more, more in common with that great big American empty than it does with Yosemite. And it's, it's, a, kind of, uh, it's a kind of conundrum. Donner Pass is a tighter landscape, easier to pack in all the usual classic Hudson Valley, Hudson School kind of uh, forms and figures of the classic sublime. But even there, it's not, it's not Yosemite. It's still more open. And the, the Bierstadt, the great Bierstadt in the show, is, is actually 72 inches high by 120 inches wide. And it has pride of place in the show. And it's, it's a stunning picture. It's amazing. I, I, what, what I came away with as I was looking at it, however, was that <clears throat> you have morning. Uh, so there's a sunrise and it's yellow and it's classic Bierstadt, very celestial light. What, what I realized was that unlike so many of his other uh, Western pictures, which classically look at the setting sun and face west, and are metaphorically all about a continent uh, expanding and manifest destiny and you know the progress from the east to the west and then the final you know frontier of the Pacific. This picture is actually looking east. Don Lake from the summit is a morning photograph that looks back at a nation in 1873 that's 20 years away be, from being formally past the frontier. When was it 1892 that? Was it Turner who declared the frontier done? And, and so this is a retrospective picture that is, that is actually more about the East in some ways, about where we had come from than the West and where, where Bierstadt and, and you know, where we were. So it, it's, 
it's almost a, well, it's a very contradictory picture in some ways, because it's not following the standard setting sun westward expansion. The only point of commonality, really, between the smaller vertical version in San Francisco and the bigger horizontal version in New York is is the sun. They're completely different views. They're completely different pictures, except for the sun. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's a key point. And, of course, Donner uh, was the great pathway. Donner Pass was the great pathway to which or over which people uh, came and entered California from from the east. And, you know, the famous Donner Party. The, for the wagon parties, yeah. I mean, for you know, many years, decades before the railroad. And, of course, the Donner Party, while it's certainly known in the East, in California, it's always been you know, much more famous, much more primal, both in terms of coming first and in terms of, you know, what happened. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a known story, but it's, it's a much bigger deal in, in the West. Yeah, well, it's a little more visceral out here. And the other thing I, I would say, too, just in terms of the soft, quality of the Sierras at this point is we have to remember that uh, the, the Donner Pass was indeed the spot where the railroad came through uh, and still comes through, but it's also where Highway 80, which runs from San Francisco to New, to New York, Interstate 80, runs through the same pass. And the reason for both the highway and the railroad is that it's the gentlest spot to cross the Sierras. And so it's very beautiful, sublime country, but it's not sort of Niagara Falls territory or, or Yosemite territory or, you know, Ansel Adams in the high Sierra, that sort of thing. So Excellent. Michael Light, thanks so much for talking with me. Great pleasure. The Dallas Museum of Art will serve as the exclusive American venue for a new exhibition of works by Jackson Pollock the first in over three decades to survey a phase of his work known as the Black Paintings. Jackson Pollock Blind Spots explores this relatively neglected yet wholly compelling part of the artist's practice and offers a new perspective on the work of one of the most famous artists of the 20th century. Jackson Pollock Blind Spots is on view November 20th to March 20th. Visit dma.org for more information. Opening this weekend at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, a focus exhibition featuring the work of Joyce Pensato. Recognizing the emblematic power of cartoons and their ability to critique aspects of contemporary culture, Pensato freezes and modifies some of the most iconic American cartoons and comic book characters, isolating them to further comment on American society and its anxieties. She works in an industrial palette of black, white, and silver enamel. Through January 31st, for more information, visit themodern.org. And we're back. Mark Klett, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here. You first went to Pyramid Lake, which is uh, northeast of Lake Tahoe, in the 1970s to take a picture of something I'm likely to mispronounce, but I think are the Tufa knobs. <laughs> yeah. Am I close? That's close. Tufa, yeah. So the, the, your f- early pictures of, of, of Pyramid Lake look nothing like Timothy O'Sullivan's picture of that place or or formation so much so that when if, if listeners go look at me on podcast.com at, at both pictures they'll do some triple takes maybe to start it would be useful to explain why your set 1979 picture looks nothing like O'Sullivan's 1876 picture well it depends on which one you're talking about because there actually I went there to rephotograph the the O'Sullivan view there were several one was of the pyramid aisle which was done from the top of the tufa 
knobs or domes. I guess they, they had broken apart a little bit, so they were a little different than when O'Sullivan was there. And then I made another picture of, you know, just for myself on the beach, kind of looking at uh, at, at the pyramid. But in both cases, it was really different because the water was so much lower when I was there than when O'Sullivan was there. And I, I think it was on the order of 50 feet or something like that, lower. So it looked a lot different. So this is... 1979, California and Nevada has always had kind of rolling water issues, if you will. Pyramid Lake, as I mentioned in the intro, is formed entirely by um, outflow from Tahoe as delivered by the Truckee River. Were you interested in water in the West before going to Pyramid Lake, or did that become an interest years later? I think that was my intro to the idea, because I really didn't know anything about the, the background, the history of the stories there until I went there. And, you know, I think one of the great things about working with historic images is that they give you something, you know, to work from. Like, why does it look the way it is now versus the way it looked then? And I was curious, you know, what, what happened to all that water? I mean, why is it down so low? It was clear, even without looking at the first photograph, that the water had dropped because there's a sort of water line that you can see. So I, I didn't even know where the water was coming from when I first went there. Uh, it was kind of a mystery to me that the water didn't flow out of the lake. It actually flowed into the lake. And I thought, that's that's remarkable. You know what? It's weird. Yeah. I mean, it takes a moment to think about it. Yeah, it's not, not typical. I mean, usually it's the other way around. So, And then, of course, the natural question is, well, what happened to it? You know, so then... Then I start learning about a little bit about the history there. Well, you know, there's the Newlands Irrigation Project, which siphoned off a lot of the water, you know, and then there's the history of litigation that, that went on. And as you know, it wasn't the only time that I went there. So in previous uh, or the, the next time, of course, then you see changes again, you know, what's happening. It's going up and down. It's, it's a function not only of the natural uh, effects of the river and the water, but the litigation that's occurring. You've been there, well, you may have been there more times than <laughs> than you've photographed. The, the picture in the book and um, I think in the show is from 2000. Do you learn new things about what O'Sullivan did there when you yourself go there and see the water level at different points? Or is it more that what you're learning and are interested in intellectually, if not pictorially, is the landscape itself? I'm interested in both. I mean, my background was in geology, so I have this interest in, in just understanding what's happening as a process in, in the land. But the pictures are, are my entry point into a place. So my first consideration is, you know, where did O'Sullivan go to make a picture, and why did he choose this instead of something else? You know, and, and uh, how did he make the picture? What What did he exclude as well as include into the photograph. And that was an interesting location because when, when he made that picture, and it's a very well-known photograph of the pyramid, pyramid aisle, you know, made from the tufa knobs, there's this kind of beautiful thing that happens in the foreground where the rocks of the tufa kind of extend into the picture, arc around a little bit in the middle ground, and then sort of point you to the, to the rock in the middle of the, the pyramid. And I wondered about, well, where did he get that? I mean, if you drive along the shore now and the, and the roads that are there and you get out and you walk along and you look for this place, the pyramid's pretty clear. Then you start seeing these tufa knobs and you go, you know, could he have been up on top of those things? I mean, it's a bit of a climb even then. So, of course, you know, I have to go up there and look at it. And where, where he stood, uh, the back part of where he stood is 
pretty much fallen off, so it's kind of open. You're standing in the, the middle of this cavity of one of the tufas that he probably had his tripod placed inside this thing, and half of it's literally gone. And then I realized that to get to the same vantage point that he used, I would have to put my camera or hover it, you know, literally just a few inches above the rock because I couldn't put my tripod in a place that was gone. So I, 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 I came to the conclusion that maybe he didn't use a tripod at all, that actually he might have just set the camera up on top of the rock and just made the picture and used the rock as a tripod. And I actually think that's what he did. That kind of stuff interests me because we, we think of historic images you know, as the product, you know, this is what's shown in the picture. It's here's this feature or a person or whatever. We we don't think that much about what it took to make the photograph. And there's choices that sometimes the photographer is free to make a lot of choices. Sometimes they're, they're kind of limited in the choices they can make. If he chose to be up on top of that spot, there's only certain places he can stand. That limits a lot of the choice. So those kinds of things I found were really fascinating and, and kind of understated, actually, as part of the history. And really, depending on the chemicals he was using, he had a certain amount of time to get the plate from his camera down to his dark tent. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he'd have to do go both ways. He'd have to, you know, be in the dark tent or the box probably that he had and coat it, then bring it up to the camera, you know, and then expose it and bring it back down again. Yeah, it's quite a feat. Yeah. All with, and and I don't know if this was different. I mean, I guess there's no way of knowing if it was different in 1867. But there is a significant salt content to Pyramid Lake. It's about one-sixth the salinity of salt water. I've been to the Great Salt Lake, and certainly you see salt crystals blowing around, and you can feel them on your skin and on your lips. And I don't know if that would have impacted uh, <laughs> O'Sullivan's timeline and how he had to deal with materials and and taking pictures, but yeah, I'm not sure about that either. I think they were pretty adept at using whatever water they had, including runoff from snow or glaciers or whatever, just to try to get the the, the process to work. So, so uh, you you've been to Pyramid Lake a bunch of times. Could you give us an idea of how those trips line up with and inform your interest in other projects you've taken on that examine water in the West? Yeah, I think that's. Part of a well, first of all, I mean that that project, the brief photographic survey project and the third view project, were, you know, part of a larger group of projects I've done that deal with, you know, repeating historic images. And by that, I, I don't mean that I necessarily in every project go back and try to do a before and after type comparison between the two, but they, they form a, a an interest that I have in, in going back to the places where original historic images were made. And those have tended to, whether I've meant them to or not, to sort of focus on water because uh, if, when you think about the reasons why 19th century photographers, say, would have made pictures, especially for a survey, was they were looking for resources. They were, they were looking for you know, a number of things that they could kind of clue them into what, or somebody else into what, what was out there. And the, the water was one of the most important things. The second thing was that once I started to find these locations that were um, and rephotographed them from the same position, it was clear that some of the most major changes that occurred in the West in the last 100, 150 years have to do with water, uh, either the impounding or the transportation of water or you know the, the, the storage in some way that's 
changes the the scene. And it's one of the, it's really probably the mo- one of the most physically, you know, mammoth kinds of changes that have occurred in the Western states. And in many ways, kind of the only way, clearest way to present that is through images and their historical relation to each other. I think it's one of the most startling ways to look at it because if you if you look at a picture, say, that O'Sullivan made of, you know, Green River uh, above the Vermilion Cliffs and, and it shows the bend of the Green River down below and now it's it's just covered with water because it's a reservoir. That's pretty startling, you know, to, to see that kind of change. And in the same way that looking at, you know, Pyramid Lake is also startling for the opposite reason. Instead of storing the water, the water has been removed or prevented from, from you know, arriving at the lake. So you, you start to see these physical changes. And the question is always, you know, why? why? You know, what's what's the cause of this? The, the photographs don't explain the cause. They only describe what what's happened. But I think they what they do is I think they generate curiosity and interest. And sometimes they are startling. And you look at them and, and by then asking the question of what happened, you you by reading more, you know, understanding more, you get informed about, about that. So uh, the, the pictures are, are sort of vehicles for uh, understanding, but they don't explain the, the, the results. Through my interest in Carlton Watkins, I've become interested in how photographers, particularly in the West, become experts about something by virtue of their experiences in the landscape, expertise that is often recognized by their peers. So, for example, when Watkins goes to Yosemite in 1861 and his pictures become famous, when Frederick Law Olmsted is hired by the state of California to figure out how to manage this preserve handed to the state by the federal government, one of the first people he contacts and asks for input is is a photographer, is an artist, Carlton Watkins. In your experiences with either the Water in the West project or with your other investigations of water, comma, in the West, <laughs> as distinct from the project, have you found that people engage you as an expert on issues related to water in the landscape or the history of the landscape? I wouldn't claim to be any kind of an expert on the water issues in, in the West. I think they're incredibly complex. But the thing that interests me is that if you sort of look at photography as one track where, where you know, photographers like me are making pictures of of water and water-related issues in the West, and it's kind of hard to avoid in a lot of ways, especially where I live in Arizona, where it's a it's a constant um, issue in some ways. If you but if you look at what we're doing as photographers, you can see that we're parallel to cer- certain other fields, you know, history, cultural geography, writing in the West, and so and and all of us are kind of moving in similar directions or looking at some of the same things, but in slightly different ways, and we overlap and. And so the the beauty beautiful thing is sometimes you know we can end up collaborating on on certain projects and and you know with a, somebody who's a writer and a, and a photographer to come together and and you know create something that that's really interesting. So I don't I don't know I would never claim to be kind of an expert on that, but I think what I can do is say that I'm I'm observing something that is part of a larger group uh, that we're all kind of in this thing together and it's kind of interesting how we're how we're coming up with stuff, you know? Does that make sense? It does, because I think artists and photographers in the 19th century might have said something similar, especially somebody like Watkins or O'Sullivan who were 
intensely engaged with scientists and I mean, O'Sullivan did a lot more survey photography than Watkins did. But I think that that experience of working with the leading scientists of their day would have led them to a similar place. Yeah. And it's kind of hard to tell from the time that you're in. I mean, I think if we looked at O'Sullivan, for example, if, if well, we look at how people thought of him in the 19th century, they might have thought of him more as sort of the camera operator. I mean, he wasn't regarded as an artist. I think I don't think that anybody in those days. Watkins was quite assertive about that, though. And, and Watkins was described by newspapers, contemporary newspapers, and even by painters as an artist. Yeah, well, I think the survey photographers weren't. And, you know, Jackson probably came the closest, William Henry Jackson. And he did he did learn a lot from Moran. And, you know, so he sort of had that background. But I, if you look at, I think, who's been the most influential to, say, contemporary photographers, it would be O'Sullivan, you know, certainly one of them. Uh, and, and I would think even, you know, at the top of the list for a lot of people because of the way that he made his pictures. So I, I, there's a, a lot of ways in which we look at them differently over time, the, the people who made the pictures differently. And, you know, I think Watkins is an example of someone who I think in a lot of ways his vision was very modern and actually very modernist in a lot of ways and very, very clean. And uh, you can compare him to, to say, you know, well, any of the survey photographers. Or even to Gardner, much cleaner than Gardner. Yeah, and, and Moybridge, I mean, is a direct comparison to, to Watkins in terms of the pictures. Very different kinds of photographers, the two of them, photographing the same the same thing. I want to close by asking you something that I also asked Anna Wolf and Michael Light. Throughout the 19th century, there was kind of a procession of great American landscape subjects. You know, you go from the Hudson River Valley to Niagara to Yosemite. This show and project got me thinking that in some ways Tahoe should have, you know, been the fourth thing that happened, the fourth great American landscape subject if if there had been one. But as it turns out, there kind of wasn't. Tahoe and the region spawns lots of work, but it never reaches the national fame of the other three. You've shot around Tahoe, especially, of course, at Pyramid Lake, as we've been discussing quite a bit over the years. Have you found yourself wondering or thinking about why Tahoe didn't become as famous as the other three landscapes? That's an interesting question. I I think that the answer, in my mind, might be more straightforward than than that. It, it, it's I mean, let's take the Grand Canyon as another kind of example. So the the Grand Canyon was thought of as a kind of big ditch, hole in the ground, and an impediment to transportation, until the later 19th century when Thomas Moran, you know, helped to popularize the canyon by teaching people really how to see it. You know, I mean, what, how do we appreciate this thing as, as more than just an impediment? I mean, how do we understand the aesthetics of the place and, and, and the beauty of it? And the artists are very good at that. And, you know, Tahoe is an amazing place and just an incredibly beautiful location. But the one thing that the Grand Canyon had going for it was it was easy for them to build a railroad to it. You know, there was a reason for tourism. There was a reason to bring people in there. The, some, so sometimes the reasons why, you know, I don't know what was at work in Tahoe, but it's probably a little more difficult, you know, to get 
up there in certain ways or to or for somebody to commercialize it or different and a lot of the photographers were that's what they were doing they were making pictures that helped to popularize these places so i mean there's a kind of reason why these things are done and i don't mean to commercialize it entirely but you know these guys got to make a living too so it it, it was kind of you know if, if maybe if there had been a, a more of a demand for it in certain ways maybe the photographers would have been up there and, and doing that i don't know that's one thing that comes to my mind because one thing i've learned about 19th century photographers there's a certain pragmatism in it that uh comes from that fact that these pictures have to be made for a certain kind of reason whether it's a survey or the railroad or they're going to sell them to somebody it may have to be cost-effective to make in the sense that an enormous quantity of material had to be gotten not just to a place, but then safely away from a place so that the prints could be made. And, you know, that was the, 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 the north side of Tahoe, which was sort of accessible because that's where the railroad goes by or went by after 1869 was sort of accessible, but yeah, you're right. Not, not certainly not as easily as accessible as Yosemite was. It was, it was a breeze to get to Yosemite by comparison. And it didn't, it didn't have the, the traffic, but they could have developed it maybe, or maybe, you know, those are questions that are kind of interesting, interesting to me, but you know, you, that's a history that's pretty clear in the Grand Canyon. You can see that, that being developed and the photography follows suit. Mark Clett, thanks so much for talking with me. Sure, Tyler. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.